Does school choice work? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ray Pennings. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Ray Pennings. Ray co-founded Cardis in 2000 and currently serves as its executive vice president. He has a vast amount of experience in Canadian industrial relations and has been involved in public policy discussions and as a political activist at all levels of government. A respected voice in Canadian politics, Ray has contributed as a commentator, pundit, and critic in many of Canada's leading news outlets and as an advisor and strategist on political campaign teams. He was founding president of EduDio, formerly Worldwide Christian Schools, and has served as chair on the board of Redeemer University College. He has led a number of large research projects at Cardis over the years, and in addition to authoring Cardis reports and columns, he has also written chapters in several publications. Ray, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. So Ray, in each episode... Uh, we base it on a question and go wherever the answers lead us. Very open discussion. The question we want to get to the bottom of today is, does school choice work? But before we jump right to a one-word answer, right to the stats, I, I want to preface that a bit. I thought we'd start with a general discussion of what you mean by school choice on the one hand, and talk also about some of your views on approaches to education. So let's start with the former. What do you mean by school choice? Well, school choice can mean a number of different things to different people. Um, obviously, you know, the most obvious is parents having a choice as to where their children go to school. Um, that can take place in a North American context. Um, the term so tends to mean something quite different than it does in other contexts around the world. Um, what most North Americans tend not to be aware of is that our reliance on government schools and a monopoly delivery of education is the exception, not the norm around the world. And many European countries, for example, have choice within a public system in which there is, whether it's um, a choice of pedagogies, religious sort of choices, um, choice in terms of different streaming of education, um, vocational choices. So there's, choice means very different things in very different contexts. If I, you know, presuming most of our audience is a North American audience and looking at it, school choice has meant meaningful options for parents outside a single monopolistic government education system. So ultimately, this framework probably pops up in a variety of forms, but the idea here is that parents have some sort of choice, whether it's publicly or, or you know, funded or, or private uh, independent schools, which we'll get to in a sec. But ultimately, it's the idea that there's more choice available to parents. That is to say, there isn't like a, you know, a, in Ontario, as an example, there isn't like a Catholic school and a public school you choose and then maybe an independent school. We're talking about a broader range of choices. And I think it's important in that context to recognize that on one hand, if we take a purist attitude to the word choice, choice absolutely exists even in the public system. Right. Uh, it, it's actually postal choice. Um, many people choose where they where they purchase their home with a view to what the best school is. And so we actually, even within a monopolistic public school system, government school system, you have an element of choice that's determined by your means. And I think most of us would recognize that schools that are in very low social economic areas tend not to necessarily provide the same caliber of education as those who are in exclusive um, areas from a social economic status. And while that gap is not as big in Canada as it is in the United States, um, certainly there is some choice that already is there. So I think we have to be careful um, in the sense that, you know, I, I sometimes, uh, you know, when my son says to me, I have, you know, you're not giving me a choice. The answer is yes, I'm giving you a choice. You just don't like the consequences of one of those choices. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so there, there, in a pure sense, choice exists. I think what we want to get at very much is we think that, you know, the premise of our research has been that choices, that parents should have meaningful choices in which wherever they live, there should be more than one place for their child to go to school, and they should be able to effectively make that choice. 
that's the sort of choice that we have in mind when we talk about school choice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad that you got very specific with the term choice because I all, and I'm sure the words, for instance, public and private will come up as our discussion goes along. So before we go any further on that, I wanted to to broaden that area too and give you, let you give a little more detail on both those terms. So um, I, I read on, on in, there was an interview with you actually on uh, convivium in this case. It was called Getting Education Right. And, uh, and, and here's what you said. You, you, you ultimately got at the point there that, this, that there's two problems. One, that there's a narrow idea of what public education means. That is to say, people always make it synonymous with direct government uh, run schools. So that's one meaning of the word public education. You said that that, that could be, a, we might need to broaden our mentality in what public education means. So that's one thing. And on the other hand, you said one of the consequences of this sort of public versus private mentality is it creates a us versus them mentality between people who want more, on the one hand, school choice, and on the other hand, don't like, for instance, government-run schools. So I, let's start with the first part. How, how do we broaden our idea of what public education means if we, if we break it away from being synonymous with a government-run school? So there's two distinctions I've typically made in terms of public. And, and one is all education that contributes to the public good, I view as public education. Um, so I, I've, I've tried to get past the traditional public-private as if government schools are public and everybody who chooses not to send um, their child or to have their child educated in the government school system is somehow opting out of public participation. I don't think that's true at all. I think the benefits of education, regardless of where it comes, um, go to all of society. Now, I recognize, you know, I, I'm being interviewed here on a podcast with the Institute for Liberal Studies. And, um, you know, my good friend Matt Buffton would probably have a different definition of public when he, public good, when he tends to, um, you know, I talk about public in terms of non-excludable and non-rivalrous sort of thing. I'm, I'm using public in a different sense mm-hmm. um, than, than might be used in, in, that, um, in that context. I view it as, does the benefits of education or differently from one system to the other. And I would argue they don't. They're all equally public insofar as an education is a choice of a parent for a child. Obviously, that child is there, but society has an interest in education in terms of having an educated citizenry, um, obviously capacity to participate in civil society. Um, Democracy requires a certain degree of education. Those are all public shared goods. and the the benefits go to everyone in society and not just to the person receiving that education. And where education contributes to that, I'd argue it's public education. So if we're not talking about sort of a narrow, pure private versus public discussion, just, just some quick examples, maybe off the top of your head, what could the role of government be in a broader public education scenario is the way you define it? Um, with more independent schools? Like would this, you know, for example, one thing off the top of my head, would this be like, for instance, as one example, like a voucher system where there's still some public funding and then independent schools? Or, or what are we really talking about here? There's a full range of options. And there, we can go around the world and look. And even in Canada, um, frankly, from Canada, uh, from the Manitoba border west, every jurisdiction has some form of public funding and public support for education. We can look south of the border and uh, we have voucher systems, we have scholarship type systems, uh, tax credits. Um, when I think of public education, um, I, I draw two distinctions. One, the, the question is to what extent should the government support all the kinds of education? And you know, we can take a look at, at jurisdictions like Australia, for example, where the Government's support for diverse education systems is very much of their campaign against inequality. So you can set up an independent school in Australia in a postal code that is low in its social economic status. And you'll receive way more government funding and support than if you set one up in a high area. So there are lots of different ways of looking at it. I think you can have a public education system even if the government didn't support any of the funding per se, um, total private, the question is, is there, do these schools qualify as schools? Do they get the recognition? Can they provide, um, are they credentialed equally? Um, how, how are they viewed? And, and there's a million and one options. 
um, to look at that. I think the key is um, the key is that the government itself views all education as equally contributing to the public good and frames whatever policies it chooses within that format. I happened a few years ago to be in a meeting with um, with the former Ontario Premier when she was the Minister of Education, and um, I was representing some independent schools at a meeting, and she began the meeting by saying, I want to be very clear that I view myself as the Minister of Public Education. Um, the, in, the inference being that those of us who were here representing the 8% of the um, students in, the, in Ontario at that time and were not part of the, the government-run school mm. somehow weren't really contributing to public education. So it starts with a mindset. And we'll, we'll continue the discussion with this sort of framework in mind. So when we talk about public education, in your sense, again, ultimately to tie that knot up, we don't necessarily need to even be talking about government funding, but the idea that the education is serving some sort of public or, or common good. Again, the term's used a little differently than maybe in economics, but but that's really what we're talking about. Absolutely. So let, let's let's go to the other side on the, just to talk about independent schools and the way you have people have a mentality around that for a second before we move on. So let's just ask it point blank. Is there merit to the idea that independent or private schools are just for the most elite of income groups or in society? Uh, and if that's true, how can we make them more more accessible? So a bit of a two-pronged question here. So first, is there even any merit to that sort of high-level discussion and assumption that a lot of people have? I, I've often joked that my job is um, countering the myth that um, independent education is for religious kooks and rich kids. Right. The reality is that the numbers vary by jurisdiction. So I'm going to give you just some round numbers along the way. Sure. If you eliminate the 5% of students who go of independent schools, who go to the super elite schools, I'm talking about the, the very recognizable names where you have $30,000, $40,000 a year tuitions. Mm -hmm. That's actually a very small segment. If we take just the zero to the 95% who spend, who send to independent schools, excluding that 5%, the average household income um, in our various studies suggests that that is at, and in some cases below, the median or average income of the entire population. Hmm. So yes, there is that elite little segment of independent schooling, which critics of independent schooling always run to and say, well, how, how can you provide any support of that? I, my own back of the envelope numbers suggest that's about 5% of it. 95% is there. And that, and it's interesting, that's almost equally divided between schools that are characterized by pedagogical distinctions. So the Waldorfs, the Montessori's, mm -hmm. um, Particular, all sorts of particular learning strategies or things that academically make those schools distinct. And approximately half of them would tend to be religiously motivated. So, you know, Christian schools, Jewish schools, Muslim schools, all of those sorts of schools as well. So in round numbers um, in Canada, and it varies provincially, um, BC has the highest percentage with 13% of students currently enrolled in non-government schools. Across the country, it works out, I think, to about 7%, okay. between 7 and 8% of students that are not educated in government schools. And, and as you're saying, in, within that 7%, it's important to remember that that 7% has a range. I, I guess, in other words, it'd be incorrect to say that 7% of students in Canada are at some sort of, as you said, 40, 50K a year uh, tuition school. That's just incorrect. As a matter of fact, only 5% of those 7% are. So a very small, uh, of the overall number of students in Canada, it's less than one percent. It's a very, it's it's a rounding error. It might be an exaggeration, but it's not. It's not a fair profile of what the sector looks like. I guess that also brings up the interesting question that if this, if uh, independent schools did become more more common, then that range would perhaps broaden and or, and deepen. That is to say that there's already sort of a test case to show that no, it, it is not true that people going to independent schools are just paying 50k, 60k a year. So we'd probably see a, more flourishing of, of different kinds of schools and varieties and tuition ranges, as you said, teaching methods, if indeed this did become more of a thing, quite frankly, in Canada, if the percentage of students 
students educated at independent schools did increase overall. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been we've been collecting data for about a decade now. I have three national representative surveys of the United States population and three of the Canadian population. Over those six surveys, um, there is a consistent finding that if we take the outcomes that we say in our public education system we want, independent schools right across the board tend to do better on almost every metric in achieving the purposes of public education as defined by the relevant Public Education Act. So as de- as defined by the Public Education Act, the independent schools are in fact doing better by that criteria. That's pretty, Absolutely. That's pretty interesting. Take a minute and actually absorb that for a second. And, and I, I thought it's important because the other thing one needs to understand in the diversity of the independent school sector is that not all schools are seeking the same thing. Um, you know, even religious schools, we began by survey, when we began our this project in 2011, one of the first things I did, um, just sort of as a preliminary study, is we surveyed a representative sample of principals in Catholic schools and Protestant schools. And what was interesting is, you know, one of the things had a thing of 10, you know, rank these 10 things in terms of the importance of your school. The Catholics and the Protestants had very different priorities in terms of what they wanted their school to achieve, which, you know, my guess is a surprise to most people. Most people would think that um, the Catholics and Protestants are all religious schools. They'd all sort of, you could lump them together. But in fact, the, the Protestants were much focused on religious habits, character, Christian formation, and piety, if you will, whereas the Catholics had much more of an emphasis on volunteering, university preparation, social justice, athletics. Um, the ranking of the, the things that the schools were seeking was very different among principals of those two. And the results of graduates of those two schools reflect the priorities of those schools. So we asked first principals before we even designed the survey, what are you seeking? And then when we asked representative samples of graduates, we saw the results reflect some of the priorities of the principal. And I think this is a very interesting point, too, and, and it's key to understanding this breakdown, because on the one hand, we have independent schools within independent schools. Uh, let's say this block, we also have religious schools. And now you're even saying, of course, that it'd be unfair even then to lump, as you were saying, all religious schools into the same category. So even within this chunk of independent schools, there's lots of variety to discuss. And I think that's that's one of the important things. We can discuss this as an education matter. I have always thought of it as more than an education matter. This doesn't just impact parents and their children. I think this also impacts our understanding of democracy and pluralism. Mm. Let me just take, for example, a very practical problem we had when we designed our first survey. Um, We wanted not just, so our surveys have looked at spiritual life and vocation and all of the rest, civil society and academic outcomes. So we've tried to measure all of life and not just does schooling prepare you to go to university? Because for a lot of people, that's not the objective. We've looked at, does it prepare you for life in society as an adult? When it came to civic society, the standard tests are things like voting and participating in protests, writing letters to the editor, staying on top of the news. What's interesting is you get some groups, for instance, Seventh-day Adventists, are very concerned about diet and health and exercise. Things that we would not usually put in the same categories as voting and everything else, but they tend, there are various religious groups who tend to downplay involvement in politics and emphasize different aspects. Um, So even in your survey tools itself, it biases towards that, but there's a diversity of participation. Um, among the priorities of different religious groups as well. And that reflects even in the outcome. Right. So on a diverse society, which maximizes choice for individuals to live their lives freely and sorts of that, I would argue you need diversity in education and real and meaningful choice in order to sort of have the full social flourishing that we profess, most people profess to want. And it's not purely just an education discussion, I suppose as well, it's also a market discussion, right? Because if a lot of different methods are being tried and uh, parents do have more of a choice of where they can send their child, like there's going to probably be in the long run at some point, some winners and losers in the economic sense that, uh, you know, certain methods will be more appealing to parents than others or certain schools will be more successful. So I guess it's not just an education discussion as well. It's also a, a 
broadening the idea that we can have more independent schooling and, and take more interest in this, hopefully as a society, we're also doing a sort of a trial and error market thing. What product works better? We're not just locked into one idea of education. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, there is some evidence when you take a look at, you know, if we, there's two elements of markets. One is how much of society's resources are going to be poured into education. And are we getting value for money on that? And there's lots of literature out there and other think tanks have probably paid more attention to, you know, public expenses in education and, and value for money return. I'm thinking some of the work that Fraser has done, particularly as well in that regard. We have avoided um, the money side of it in terms of the cost of it. We have focused more on the various outcomes. And you can lay the various education the measures of choice alongside, for instance, PISA scores as, as, uh, reflected re as collected regularly by the OECD, you will see generally, and this isn't a precise parallel, but generally, even within Canada, those jurisdictions that have more meaningful choice and support for more choices in education tend to score better on international education testing results than those that have greater percentages in what I would call the monopoly government education system. And I don't think it comes as a surprise. Uh, monopolies have not been known as the seedbed for innovation and for being cutting edge in education. In, in any jurisdiction. So it'd be a surprise to see them do that in education. And I guess it's, now they bring up the word monopoly, it, it does trigger in my mind the interesting point that, um, that that's that's what mostly in a variety of jurisdictions, uh, you know, pub, uh, government funded or government run education seems to be or at least close to it. Nothing's perfect. But but ultimately, if you were to go to somebody and say, hey, should there be a monopoly on grocery stores in this city? Let's say some people, absolutely not. And then they seem to understand the, the market based principles and why diversity is important. It seems that there's a, a bit of a flip to this mentality when it comes to especially in some areas of Canada. I've had this conversation with people, too, in Ontario. That there's, this mentality seems to flip when we talk about government run education, that people feel very invested into this uh, near monopoly of, of public funded government-run education, and I just find that very interesting. And one of the things, that you, we, we did a study a couple of years back in which we looked at, um, signed a researcher to look at the agenda of every local chamber of commerce in the country, every business organization for the last, I, I don't remember, I think it was over five years. What was interesting is the monopoly in healthcare was addressed in some situation. The monopoly in education was hardly ever addressed. Hmm. One exception, when John Manley was the president of the Business Council of National Issues or whatever, he made a speech in Edmonton and he touched it. And there was such a furor in response to that, that it would have appeared that, you know, that's just a hot potato that nobody seems to want to touch. And my argument is that it's a fundamental discussion that we need to have, not only if we want to have the sort of excellent education results and opportunities for all Canadians, but it's actually a fundamentally a democratic conversation. So one thing I also enjoyed about a lot of the things you've written on this topic, and specifically about to refer to an article that appeared in the Star by you, it's called uh, Independent Schools Contribute to the Public Good and Deserve Public Support. That's the title if people want to look it up, and we'll also put it in our episode notes when it's posted. Um, but one thing I enjoy about your writing on this topic is that, again, as we said at the beginning of the episode in our discussion, you're never trying to do this us versus them mentality or one alternative is just purely better than the other. You're ultimately talking about diversity and why that's good. And and you have a quote here that says, the sort of innovation provided in independent schools can provide insight into the sort of innovation that might help our education system at large. That is to say that th there's ultimately an interplay that we can all benefit from in this situation where, you know, again, you're not saying get rid of all government-run schools, but if we allow for more independent schools, again, there could be an interplay of methods and, and, and you know, certain schools might see other schools doing better things. The government-run schools might learn some things and change some of the methods. So that, that interplay is also important here too for that diversity. It's not just about direct choice, but also how they can affect each other. Absolutely. And that's where really what's required is as much of change of mindset. I'm always struck. I've been on lots of panels and that. And the, you know, the advocates for, you know, it's most frequently teachers unions, but sometimes it's, um, you know, people who study and are advocates for the public school system. I have always said, I, I want a strong public school system. I think there needs to be an umbrella in society in which we guarantee and we have a, a shared interest in guaranteeing 
that there is a, a, a good education available for every student. I simply wish that they did not have an exclusive mindset about themselves as if they know best and that the decisions that are centrally made are somehow preferable to the decisions made for parents. I actually, I believe in the principle of subsidiarity. You push decisions down to the closest level where it is, which means that parents are going to be the best decision makers in terms of the sorts of education that's best for their, for their child. And that choice can only be made if there are meaningful options available between school A, school B, and school C. And um, I think that if the public education system, which in almost every jurisdiction in the world is the plurality, is the largest single system, but you know, I think I cited in the Star article you mentioned, I was responding to some critique um, that was made about a, um, a taxation funding model by, um, by a defender of the public education system. And I cited the Australian example, which I mentioned earlier. There are different even social outcomes that can be looked at um, through the lens of educational funding. And I think we can, we can be wide open, and there may be there, too, in different jurisdictions. Um, you know, I, we, we do a lot of work on policy in both Canada and the United States. And clearly, the social economic gap in especially American schools and some of the large urban centers where some of their public system schools, um, you know, are, are very, very inadequate. Um, you know, my sense is that in Canada, we have a range, but that range is much narrower than it is in the United States. For those parents not to have any choice but to send their children to a public school that is not providing an education and, in fact, um, providing a danger, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's an abysmal situation right. um, to be in. And so I, I think we have to take a look. And the policy solution in that jurisdiction would be something very different than you might be advocating in Alberta or Ontario. Shifting gears a little bit, one more question before I'm just looking at the clock here before we head into our break. We do have time for one more part of the discussion. So at, at the beginning of the discussion, I brought the fact that um, your critique of some people that from the that are proponents of independent schools, your critique of sometimes their, their method is that it's, it's a little us versus them. There is an us versus them on the flip side, though, as well. A lot of proponents of government-funded schools or government-run schools specifically, not only do they seem to sometimes present a case as to why they, they might not think, for instance, independent schools uh, you know, should be more of a thing, but but they also tend to to really like dig into their trench, if you will, when you talk about independent schools. There's, there seems to be, and maybe you're more experienced in this, so you let me know, but, and I don't want to use the word lightly, but it seems like they're almost, the th they're, they're not only disagreeing with the idea of more independent schools, but they feel like threatened by the whole possibility. Is this a situation of, of vested interests or like, or am I reading into it too much? W what do you think? No, absolutely. And, um, I don't know if you came across, we covered a case um, just a few months ago, actually, I think it was in the fall, in Brockville, where the public school board refused to sell a surplus school to an independent school, stating hmm. it as a threat, and they sold it for less money to some other organization. Um, and that's the subject of some litigation. But it was fascinating to see the public school system refuse to sell a surplus building to an independent school, arguing that it was a threat um, to public education. It, it, it's laughable. When you take a look at the numbers, there was a couple of hundred students in this independent school over against a public system that had tens of thousands of students. The resource gap was just, it, 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 it was farcical. Right. And you know, there, you see this regularly where defenders of public education will take any public program that provides material advantage to independent schools and somehow portray that as taking money from public schools. These private schools are taking money from public schools. Well, there's a fundamental flaw in that. First of all, every citizen is a taxpayer right. who contributes that fund, regardless of where it is. And secondly, every student is also a member of the public. And participates in the public good. So there's that's not a taking of money. That's an investment. And usually it's less money than is in the public system. It's an investment in education that I would argue contributes to the public good. 
Right. Yeah. And I guess back, back to what I was saying before that when you flip, when you take that discussion and place it on a different framework, people might realize how silly it is. That is to say, if I go get, let's say, an Android phone instead of an Apple phone, and then some guy comes out of the Apple store and says, hey, you're taking my money or you're, you're a threat. I mean, from a business perspective, of course, they do view that as a threat in, in some sense. They want to have my money. But ultimately, that's not really the way that discussion truly works outside of this public education discussion. It's very fascinating. And if you're going to use the business analogy, we are all owners. You know, if, if the government is the one, we're all shareholders in that. Right. And somehow, somehow what you're saying is you're not giving it to the advantage of shareholder A over shareholder B. And I'm just looking at the clock here. We're going to take a quick break. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ray Pennings today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Bryce Tingle, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ray Pennings today. Ray, I thought our first part of our conversation was great. We talked about school choice and some attitudes towards it. Um, I want to zone in on something here. You actually touched on it in the first half, but I want to drill down a little further. Let's talk about approaches to education. This probably ties back to our discussion about why it's important to have a diversity of educational options for for students. Um, but you said when we look at like government run schools today, and I've, I've tracked this through some of your writing here, that you're saying that ultimately it seems that f- for most government run schools, the fo- the educational focus simply is to set people up for either university, just that next stage, or ultimately in broader sense, just economic success. success. And you've written that that's ultimately a, a, a misguided one. Um, and that you said that the society that we live in should also be considered. Now, you, you mentioned an example in the first half about there are some schools that actually take a conscious approach to ensuring that that, that is focused on. But but let's talk talk a bit about that. Uh, you know, is this one major benefit of a diversification of schools uh, is one of the benefits that we get away from this idea on the whole that school is just to prepare you economically for something, right? It's preparation for a job or preparation for that next step or whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that because while that is the popular perception, the purposes of education, even as outlined in the um, in education acts, tends to have a much more holistic approach to education. Um, you know, generally it, you know, they're, 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 and, and every jurisdiction has their own act and they vary along the way, but they'll tend to talk about, um, you know, promoting uh, virtues, civic virtues and equipping for participation in society. Um, so there is, there is a sense in which the holistic approach to education, we don't educate parts of children. And, you know, I, I'm fairly fond of the saying that I don't think educators should teach, should view children as brains on sticks. Um, We are whole people. We are whole people. And whether we like it or not, there is a moral formation. We can have lots of debates about whose morals and what that is, but I don't think, I don't think anybody would seriously dispute that between that the education of a child, and I'm thinking particularly of K through 12 or, you know, JK through 12, the, the 13 or so years of, 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 gov- of what we commonly refer to as um, uh, primary and secondary education, uh, that which we invest in somebody at, at the age of 18 and we expect them to have. We expect them not only basic numeracy, basic literacy, general awareness of how society works and equipping to go into either the workforce or further academics. We also expect certain behaviors to be normed in terms of respect for law. Um, Certain things are good, certain things are bad. Um, Volunteering, generosity, a certain caring. Now, that has different emphasis and um, different people shape that. But certainly within the public education system, if we said 
none of that is allowed. You know, people would say, wait a minute, we're not, we're not taking our educational task seriously. And so, you know, there is a holistic approach to education. And certainly there are some educational philosophers and, um, you know, uh, approaches that emphasize, you know, the and, and this isn't just true in our time. You can go back to the Greeks and throughout history in terms of, you know, do we educate society? Now, within educational philosophers, there is a debate. Do we focus on each individual child and that child reaching his or her potential? Or do we focus on outcomes for the common good? And I don't think that's a binary either or. I think most educational philosophies, you would take that and you would see there is a continuum of philosophies along, you know, along the way. Almost everyone would agree that there are elements of both that are part of an education system. So it only makes sense that we provide a binary, uh, a continuum of choices. Um, also in terms of how that education is delivered. What's interesting to me as you're saying that is I'm just thinking that I've, I've talked to a lot of people before that on the one hand, actually, I just should take a step back and say like, so on the one hand, it's not uncommon to find parents. Let's, let's say we're, we're talking about Ontario, Canada now, like in the, uh, in the Ontario school system, whether they're sending their, their child to a government run Catholic school or government run public school, that they're dissatisfied for a variety of reasons, whatever they may be with the educate. I mean, they may say, okay, it's better than nothing, et cetera, but ultimately they have a lot of complaints and are happy with the teachers or the class. But then if you flip the conversation and, I, and I've personally had this experience and, and you say, well, and then you start talking about school children choice to them and the different alternatives, they can somehow compartmentalize what they were just talking about, about how horrible the system is or, or the school or the dissatisfaction with it and switch to the other compartment in their brain where they talk about how bad it would be if there was more private schools or more independent schools. And, and that to me, I, I, maybe I'm just wondering aloud and I'd like you to do that with me, but that to me has always been fascinating how people are so used to this. There are some real ironies. Um, last year, we did a survey of parents in uh, British Columbia, one of the jurisdictions in Canada. And um, I believe there were about 700 parents randomly selected. Um, so who chooses independent schools and why? And what are the factors? And two things that, that, that stood out on that. One, um, actually, teachers in public schools were more likely than the norm to send their kids to, pri to private or to non-government schools. Hmm. I thought it was a very telling statistic that they were significantly overrepresented on a per capita basis. And sending their own kids, so they teach in in the government system, but they send their own kids to other systems, uh, which I thought was a curious thing. The second thing, safety. Let's just let's just talk about you know safety. So one of the primary driving factors, and and that shows up in our surveys. It shows up in similar surveys that have been done by other organizations. I'm thinking also in the United States. I've seen some where. A major concern for kids, or for parents and sending their kids to school is the safety of the child in that school in the context of bullying, in the context of, you know, their, their physical state safety as well as their mental safety um, along the way. Well, where does safety come from? Well, it comes from the expectation that I'm sending my child to a school with other children and I am concerned about the behavior of those other children towards my child which actually does reflect a certain expectation of social norms, social behavior, that character that is going to be taught. So the very expectation of that my child is going to be safe in a school, which is a microcosm of society as a whole, is the fact that there is going to be some general norms of behavior that are going to be both taught and enforced to some degree that keep us all safe. and. The expectation is that's taught in a school system and ultimately will translate into the sort of society in which we want to live together. So I sometimes, I, I find it ironic in the sense that people will talk about, no, 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 let's narrowly focus on the academics and, uh, and outcomes and we don't want all this moralistic sort of stuff. And yet their very priority of the safety requires a certain set of behaviors to be, you know, certain behaviors are good and other ones are not so good. You know, that, that, that we can't escape that reality. As you said, it's interesting to note that some people that may be of the mentality that it's just about the academics will focus on, you know, the reading, writing and arithmetic and that's it or whatever. Also have a lot of expectations of what the schooling environment should provide beyond that. Absolutely. I want to shift gears over to the Cardis Education Survey. Honestly, I have a quote here and I and I. 
have a little note here of how I could introduce the CARS education survey, but I'm but I'm talking to you. So why before I jump into specific questions, but why don't you tell us a bit about what the CARDIS education survey is and, and what it does and what it strives to, to look at. Our our entrance into the education as a research area at CARDIS emerged from um, really a couple of convictions. One, significant resources are being invested by philanthropists and parents in terms of the existence of an alternative education outside of schools. And frankly, the original impetus came from being challenged by some of those investors in terms of, could we help them come with some measure of return on investment? And they weren't looking for economic return. They were wondering whether or not graduates of of Christian schools, which was their motivation in that case, were they really different in adult behavior and adult life? Did spending, you know, the if you take a look in Ontario right now, um, you know, $10,000 a year tuition or $5,000 a year tuition times 12 years, a, a parent sending a child to independent schools is investing somewhere between fifty and $150,000 or $200,000 over the K-12. Um, they're sacrificing vacations and relying on philanthropists and everything else. 50 years later, is it making a difference in their lives? Do, does that graduates actually look different. So that was the challenge that was put to us originally. And so then we had to begin thinking about how would you measure that? So we decided to focus on surveying adults, 23 to 39. And we chose that because we didn't want to measure attitudes or aspirations of people who were in school. We wanted to measure behaviors of those who were outside of school. At the same time, we wanted as close to the educational experience as we could so that we could attempt to, using controls and other statistical methods, try to at least, I don't think we could, we can come to the point of causation, but we can at least come to a correlation between school sector types. So long story short, we have on six separate occasions now, three in the United States and three in Canada, hired polling firms commissioned them to take representative samples of the adult population, 23 to 39 years old, and um, 500 who went to public school and oversample everybody else so that we get representative samples that we can weight accordingly for um, all the different schooling types. And we asked the whole, um, the full survey, I think is 111 questions. So we, we track their total schooling and background. And then we ask questions in terms that focus on academic achievement, cultural engagement, and spiritual formation. So we try to look at their whole life, and then uh, we take the results and we analyze them and weigh them by school sector and see that as, as 30-year-olds um, engaged in society, can you take all those who went to Catholic school, are they different than all those who went to home school, are they different than all those who went to public school? And, um, and and draw some conclusions. So that that was the exercise um, that we've engaged in. Um, so we've got tons of data um, and our website, cardis.ca slash education, all of the data is, is fully available there for people to analyze and make their own conclusions. There's more than 30 research papers looking at different dimensions of the data. Essentially what the, what the Cardis Education Survey has shown is that every other form of education, and we we have by and large, and it varies, there's slight different categories in Canada and the United States, but generally we've done academically oriented independent schools, Catholic schools, Protestant schools, and um, and homeschooling. Right. As, as the categories that we have analyzed and compared. And, and one of the things I, that spoke to me as I was reading the introduction of the Cardis Education Survey, I was looking at the 2018 one, um, you, the quote, it is designed to gauge whether, and then it goes on to say, independent school sectors with their particular culture, values, and practices are ultimately contributing to the common good or detracting from it. And I, and I thought before I got into stats, that was really cool to read, because as we were saying before in our discussion in other areas, that this isn't just about academics. This isn't about, is this person really good at math coming out of this process? It's, it's about how it affects them in their lives, but ultimately, you know, the broader discussion, the common good. I thought that was very powerful. And, and, some, of the, and some of the questions we have really focus on that. We ask about, have you voted in the last municipal, the last provincial, the last federal election. So we're able to analyze not only did you vote in one election, but do you have a habit of voting? Um, we ask about, you know, 
giving along the way. We have we ask about engagement in workplace organizations. Mm-hmm. So all the sorts of things that people would associate with good being a good citizen, caring for your neighbor, looking out along the way. We attempted as as best you can in a survey. Obviously, you're still limited by the the size of the survey, and ours is on the longer end. Um, and you know. It, you find some fascinating things. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what struck you. Uh, you know, I'd be interested as as you scum, uh, skim through it. Were, were there any big surprises for you? Maybe not big surprises, but but I actually have a few notes here, and let, yes, let's jump into them. So one thing that I that I liked and, and was the first thing is that, and I, I, this spoke to me in just like a nice way. Like I have to say, this like really spoke to my heart. I like the idea that we're talking about whether students felt, and this sounds very basic, right? But to me, I like seeing the results. Whether students felt like the teachers cared or not. That that was a really interesting graph to look at, and uh, and, and I want to just take a quick second and say everybody, we will uh, Ray just said a link you could go to, you can check this the survey out online. The, there's the PDF, but we'll also put it in our episode notes, everybody, if you want to take a look at this stuff as we're talking about it here, and maybe even look along. But so students feeling like the teachers cared, um, th- there was a higher rate of this, just flat out. Uh, specifically, um, the paragraph I read pulled uh, the interesting note about the Protestant and Catholic schools students that were surveyed, but but. Uh, it, that's it just sort of left me speechless for a sec. I had to stop and sit for 30 seconds. And be like, that's pretty darn important when you look yep. at government run in schools and how, how that they were lower compared to, to some of the other school categories. But simply going to a place every day and feeling like the teacher actually cares about what's going on, that's a pretty darn big deal. And it's it's interesting, um, you know, and, and we've written six, contributed to the writing six of these reports now. So each time you sort of take a different emphasis, if you will. One of the things in the 2018 U.S. report that we highlighted is the thickness of communities and the alignment between, you know, the home and the spiritual community in which they are a part of and the and the school. And when there is a reinforcement, when there is a certain synergy, you can expect more favorable education results. Now, you know, you can, you can go read education theory and they talk about, you know, the coherence of the various influences in the student's life in terms of how that reinforces certain educational outcomes. I thought, you know, I, I think the satisfaction remarks, part of that is a function of size. Um, independent schools tend to be smaller, which results in more intimate relations. Um, you know, and size has its benefits. It also has its downsides. You know, for example, the 2018 um, survey, you um you might have noticed that Catholic um, Catholic school graduates are way more likely to be in scientific or in investment STEM related vocations than Protestants. Mm-hmm. Protestants are 1.8 times more likely to be employed in the healthcare sector. And, you know, we, we we wondered why would you see vocational differences on a per capita basis? Well. Part of this might be the average size of an independent high school in the United States is 287 students. What it means in real practical terms is that at the advanced level, at the grade 12 level, you are likely in such a school only going to have one teacher in teaching physics calculus, um, the advanced mass along the way. We know from the educational literature and the career literature that we are way more likely to choose a career in which we had a mentor in our teenage years who who cultivated our passion or our interest for that. Well, in a larger school, you're more likely to have a mentor in a variety to connect with a teacher that has a passion for the same aptitudes that you might have as a student than in a smaller school. Mm -hmm. Consequently, you do not see in some of the particulars, you know, Catholic school, students who went to schools that are larger are more likely to be in some of those locations than, for instance, you know, Protestant schools or others. So there are two sides. On the one hand, it's a very positive sense of a great deal of satisfaction, identification with your teacher, um, the influence of your teacher as a mentor for life. Um, there's a lot more of that sort of stuff that comes out of the positive schools. On the other hand, the smaller school does have its limitation in terms of product offerings. And we ultimately can see that in measurable ways in terms of career choices. On that note, actually, one thing that I that also struck me as interesting was, and I think this was, I'm not sure if there's a specific uh, graph that was set up related to this, but I remember one of the conclusions of the survey was that um, it seems that, that the independent schools created a situation where students ended up with 
a higher sense of obligation to, quote, take action against wrongs and injustices. So this was pretty interesting. Specifically in this case, if my note is correct here, it was the Protestant school graduates that were actually of, of much note here. Um, but but again, that was one that struck me as really interesting too. Back Tying back to what we are saying before, common good, having an education process that rounds people out as character, not just teaching writing or math. That's another link that I made there is like we're talking about an education system that's encouraging people or they feel like one of the results is that as, as a character, they're more likely to take action against wrongs and injustices. That's a huge statement for someone to feel like their education system yeah, prepared them for that. Which, you know, my guess is that most parents who are paying a tuition to an education, uh, to a Protestant education system and sending their, their child to, you know, presumably the vast majority of them share that faith themselves. Although it needs to be pointed out that many religious schools have students who do not belong to the religion for which their schools are. Right. You know, I can keep breaking down the data, but again, you know, you have what we call missional schools in which religious schools provide schools according to their own religious framing, but make them open and available to all. There are, you know, more closed schools that tend to be focused on people of their own religious community. What is interesting is that a parent who, you know, if I can reduce, you know, Christianity along the way to, you know, loving God above all and loving your neighbor as yourself, that golden rule, an education that reflects that, um, I think most of those parents would hope for the result that you just cited, in which as an adult, someone who's been trained with that would feel a moral obligation to stand up against injustice um, and to speak. And you know that that would could be seen or understood to be a logical outcome of the intention of that sort of education which was consciously chosen by the parents another one that was interesting to me was that independent schools seem to uh, give students uh, a higher feeling of being well prepared for the world after high school and in this case the highest uh, uh, proportion of that was 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 non-religious schools, which I found interesting as well. But but either way, as compared to again government-run schools, uh, the independent schools seem to give people again a higher feeling of being pre- well prepared for the world after high school. This seems to be a goal that I would hope any parent with any with their child in a school system. That's what they're hoping at least comes out of this process. But again, here we have a situation where the independent schools seem to be coming out on top in that area. And if you dig into the data, you'll find we can break those. There, there are surveys. We asked, did, did your high school education prepare you for post-secondary? Did it prepare you for the workforce? Did it prepare you for challenges in life? There's a whole range of sub-questions there. And those results vary a little bit by sector, but consistently all of the independent school sectors score higher than than do the public school sector. So it's definitely a hard, I mean, we talked a little bit in the first half or maybe it was at the beginning of the second half, but nevertheless about uh, people feeling like, you know, uh, sometimes the alternative systems are a threat to public education. Well, maybe they're a threat to the system in some weird way if you construe it that way, although we both say we, we disagree with that sentiment, but they're certainly not a threat to the student's preparation, which we think would be a shared goal, right? And, and I would, you know, part of our work, and you, you did point that out, but I want to highlight for the listener, I do not, in all of our work, we have taken great care not to portray this as independent schools versus government-run schools. For sure. What we have tried to do is to reframe that to say we have a common enterprise of public education that all of us as citizens and government in terms of its distribution of, al- of resources towards education has to choose. And we think that that is best achieved by a diversity of systems and in some jurisdictions, those diversities are offered within the public school system. Now, there are arguments to be had about the different polities and where there are pros and cons. Um, you know, if you put me on the spot and said, you know, if you had to pick one system in North America, which is among the best, I'd probably go to the Canadian province of British Columbia and look at how they, you know, the legislation and the framework and the infrastructure they have built around independent schools. But there are other, you know, arguments to be made. And, you know, increasingly, our, our data doesn't capture charter schools quite as much. Charter schools are schools within the public education system. One, one caveat to our data, remember, we're surveying 23 to 39-year-olds. and We began surveying people in 2011, which actually means we are educated. If you were 39 years old in 2011, you had your education system in the 80s and the 90s. You had your education in the 80s and 90s. Right. 
so there is one of the downsides of our data or limitations is um, we are actually edu- measuring education as it was, you know, a decade in the previous decade. Now it's education is a pretty big ship and it's slow, it turns pretty slowly. So I think there's lots of validity and we are now coming to the point where we can combine our data sets and starting to take a look at cohorts and actually measure changes between the eighties, the nineties and the early two thousands um, and, and start to see trends. And that's analytical work that we are beginning to undertake now. Um, up until now, the data set simply wasn't large enough for us to draw meaningful conclusions on that. But now we're going to be able to start looking at how education is changing. Right. But I would say that there is, you know, within North America, we have 60 jurisdictions providing different educational models. And there's a wide variety. There's lots of choice that can be delivered within government-run education as well. And I'm as in favor of that as I am in the right of groups outside of government to form and um, and be able to deliver education that's for the public good. Just looking at the clock here, our time is winding down. So I want to get just a couple more thoughts. And I'm going to move away from the, the CARDIS Education Survey results specifically now. But I do encourage everyone to check out the episode notes and check out the survey you can get online. It is very interesting. Uh, so I'm glad we had a chance to discuss that, Ray. One thing before I completely leave the topic, though, is there was something noted in the in, in sort of the, the literature in, in the survey. And, and I and I want to explore it real quick with you today because it was very interesting to me. So it was this idea that independent schools, whether religious or not, uh, tend to have more of what we can call sort of like a thick culture or a, versus a thin culture. So the idea, my understanding was that a thin culture is something like, you know, the idea you have a bunch of different students, different walks of life, we coexist, there's a general approach to the education process, fine. But a more uh, thicker culture would be, you know, th- a more unifying purpose. Obviously, in, with, in a religious school's case, one can think how that could be uh, obvious, how what the unifying purpose may be. But in a non-religious school case, this could simply be a, a method of teaching or something specifically uh, secular about a, a goal for the community. But ultimately, it did strike me as interesting that independent schools tend to have more of that that thick culture that unifies people going through the process. And I think that that can be explained in part by an inherent self-selection that's there. Um, just in terms of the explanation of the data and you know, for those who are statistical geeks, read the fine print in terms of how all the controls and that. In summary, we took 29 factors, social economic status, religious, all the rest, and we we controlled for them. So we mathematically neutraled them out, if you will, for the non-statistically oriented so that you're comparing apples and apples as opposed to apples and oranges. Um, the the reality remains that you can control all you want. There is, especially in a school in which tuition is being paid, a conscious choice on the part of the family to direct some of their resources towards education that the person who has sent the free option hasn't done. Mm. And that is a proxy for a bunch of other things that probably are that are likely to be found in those sorts of households. Um, not exclusively, some of them are found in other households, but they're going to be more concentrated in that group. And so when we talk about the thicker culture, we're really talking about the fact you're more likely to have an alignment, if you will. Um, the, the range is somewhat narrower um, in terms of some of those values. And that tends to reinforce, you know, I'll just use a very practical example. If you have a class of 10 kids and they you know if we had to on a numerical scale you had six of them that are fives or sixes but you've got a couple ones or twos and a couple of nines or tens there as opposed to a second group of 10 kids in which you still had sixes um six who were fives or sixes but the other four were either fours or sevens So your complete range is four to seven as opposed to the complete range. Mathematically, it might be exactly the same in terms of your averages and your medians. Mm. But the narrower band of numbers means that even just the teacher in the classroom doesn't have to address the same range. There is a narrower focus. And so there is an advantage pedagogically and educationally to have that narrower range from the student. 
So the flip side of that, the critic will say, well, wait a minute, that's where you're going to have narrow-minded bigots who only have gone to school with people who are just like them. The education system, you know, the public education system exposes you to the broad diversity. We've explicitly asked various questions about that in our surveys. And, you know, I, I'll spare you all the details here. It would take us too long. But one of the things we did, um, particularly in our 2014 U.S. survey, which was a real fun module, is we asked people to name their five closest friends, the first name. And then we asked them all sorts of features about their friends. Are they of the same race? How did you get to know them? Are they of the same religion? Um, are they LGBTQ? Not, you know, all the different standard diversity measures that we want. And what we actually found was that while there were some segments of exception, um, overall, as adults, graduates of independent schools had as, if not more, diverse networks as adults of their closest friends than did graduates of public schools. Uh, so it was, it was a fascinating, you know, in many ways it debunks the myth that just because you necessarily go to school with a slightly narrower subgroup of the population, that you will end up um, not being as aware of other of diversity and tolerance. And I'd actually go one step further. While government schools, in terms of their overall data, have great diversity statistics, because they represent the diversity of society, given the fact that 92% of students attend their schools. Statistically, that's always going to be that way. I would argue the experience of an individual student in a government-run public school probably is going to be narrower because they are going to go to school with people in their particular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll just use a couple of examples from Toronto, um, Canada, and for the benefit of those who you know, if you are in the northern part of um, Toronto, there are large population concentrations of those who would be of Asian origin. And to no one's surprise, if you were a Caucasian in a school in the Markham part of Toronto, you would be a distinct minority and the vast majority of that classroom would be students of Asian origin, whether or not that's first or second. If you go to the um, northwest side of Toronto, you've got large population of East Asian, um, Pakistani and Indian um, descent. So the diversity actually experienced in an individual public school is probably less than is experienced by students in independent non or in government non-government schools because they draw from a larger catchment areas. And it's interesting to see that actually um, parents who were born outside of Canada are overrepresented in their kids who in the those who make choices to send um, their students to independent schools, which by definition means that independent schools are overrepresented in the diversity of uh, multicultural groups that make up the country. So right. when you actually averages are very deceiving when it comes to uh, to these sorts of numbers. And when we take a look at the individual experience and we've now measured the outcomes and we can say with, uh, with statistical backing that um, graduates of independent schools have diverse networks as adults and arguably are more diverse, not less diverse and sensitive than graduates of, of public schools. And our time is pretty much wound down here. Before we, we wrap up the episode formally, I just wanted to, and I think it actually works very well after what you were just discussing. I want to pull a quote here from the the, uh, the Cardis Education Survey, because we were talking a lot in our discussion about the not just education, but the broader themes of choice and pluralism, why those are ultimately good things. There's a statement here I liked. It said, from the, from the again, from the Cardis Education Survey, a system that allows for educational pluralism aligns with a posture of deep respect for cultural diversity and religious convictions. So ultimately, this isn't just a, a narrow conversation about where we're sending kids to school in the morning. This is a broader societal discussion as well. Absolutely. I, um, If I can just plug one of our senior fellows, Dr. Ashley Berner, who's at Johns Hopkins University, has written what I think is the definitive textbook about education pluralism around the world. And she compares international systems um, along the way. And I think 
she makes very powerfully the case that if we are committed to liberal democratic pluralism, liberal democrat or uh, pluralistic educational systems is a necessary byproduct or, char- or characteristic of a vibrant and flourishing uh, pluralistic society. So, Ray, uh, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. In each episode, I like to let the guest have the last word. So let me ask the question I ask everybody. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether school choice works? I know we've talked about a lot, but what statement would you like to leave people with? School choice is not just about educating children, which should be of concern to parents who have school-aged children. It certainly involves and and impacts them significantly. But I would argue that more significantly, school choice is about how do we want to order society and how do we, for the benefit of the public, have an education system that is as good as it can be. And I would argue that if we want innovation, if we want excellence, and if we want a society that is truly flourishing, in the midst of all of the diversity that is the reality of North American society today, educational diversity is an essential part. The school choice is part of that. Excellent. We'll leave it there. Ray Pennings, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.